Hello again, friends, and welcome to the Young Anglicans Podcast. Join us on what proves to be a special edition of the Young Anglicans podcast today. A couple of weeks ago, we had the Anglican Youth Ministers Gathering in Wheaton, Illinois for 2019. Uh, it was a pre-conference to Rooted once again. And at that pre-conference, our very own Andrew Unger gave a breakout talk about the rule of life and how various contemplative monastic practices and the rule of life are important tools that we can offer to our students as we invite them into a life of loving and following Jesus. I found it really helpful and thought-provoking. I look forward to maybe someday having more conversations with Andrew about this subject. But anyway, uh, I'm going to step aside now and uh, press play on that particular uh, recording of Andrew giving that breakout. Uh, he does make a reference to a few of the other talks we heard in that time. Uh, I, I don't think it really affects anything, so you can just kind of let that go, but you may hear him refer to some of those. But I hope you find it as helpful as I did. And so, without further delay, here's Andrew. Um. Well, talking about the difference between theory and practice is actually a really good segue into this rule of life uh, breakout. Um, as a short introduction, um, my name is Andrew Unger. I'm the youth pastor at All Souls, where we celebrated Eucharist last night. Uh, I've been there for 12 years. Um, I started as a part-time youth pastor, um, fresh out of college, and that's grown into a full-time position. I've become, uh, I got named the associate rector, which gave me no extra duties, but it did give me a title, so that was nice. Um, so I'm associate rector and pastor to youth. Um, I felt a call to youth ministry or to ministry in general at a Baptist convention uh, in the summer before 10th grade, and I'm, I'm one of those awful people who kind of was like, yeah, I know this is what I want to do, and I've been on that track ever since. Uh, my wife describes her call as a very different, more circuitous way. Um, but I love youth ministry. Um, I am begrudging the possibility that one day I might not be able to do it, but I love youth ministry. I love youth ministry ideas, and I really love youth ministry, like, concepts and thinking big thoughts about it, which is why I have this rule of life discussion. Um, I'll also throw in a caveat. I am occasionally prone to hyperbole and to overstate my case. So if this is... There's a good chance I'm probably either in my actual, like, text of what I'm saying or as an ad lib might say something and, like push too far against some, some other things, um, please give me grace on that and push me back later and be like, Andrew, come on. And I'll be like, ah, you're right. And, and it'll be a good conversation. But just know I'm a little bit prone to hyperbole. So um, stick with me on that. Um, so we're talking about rule of life. Um, and I want to start, we're going to start real big picture and get focused as we go. At first, there, there's what I'm calling the problem. So in the last decade or so, um, there have been some amazing books written on like thorough research about youth ministry that have shaped much of my thinking and a lot of people's thinking about how to do youth ministry. And a lot of times they're researched and written as a response to this statistic that we see in various incarnations. But basically, I looked up whatever the most recent numbers of the most recent study that like two thirds of high schoolers who go to church now stop doing so when they leave the house, right? And so there's this kind of crisis in youth ministry that the 90s based youth ministry, the Jesus and pizza model seems to have failed us. What do we do? 
So the question in everybody's mind is how do we keep them? And so in response, there's books like Sticky Faith and Growing Young coming out of Fuller uh, and books like Almost Christian and Soul Searching coming out of the National Survey of Youth and Religion. Um, And I think they've been really good in reprioritizing youth ministries. And they've helped show that the issues are not ones of content, but of form. That difference of it's not that the churches were teaching bad theology, but it's that the way they taught theology, the way they taught about Jesus, and maybe the way they showed students how to follow Jesus was flawed. Um, moral therapeutic deism is this phrase that comes out of the National Survey of Youth and Religion, right? That, that Jesus was, or that God is distant and wants you to be happy and wants you to feel good. Um, it's sort of be a good person, feel good, but God is distant and uninvolved in our lives. But it's unlikely that evangelical churches were teaching moral therapeutic deism explicitly. But it's just that something about the disconnect between what they said about the Bible and how they actually live their faith lives there's a disconnect, right? And so as a way to push back, like Sticky Faith talks about having a web of relationships, having good conversations, being able to doubt, practicing justice out of the home. Um, in Almost Christian by Kenda Creasy Dean, she talks about these markers of college students who stuck with their faith, like having opportunities to give testimony, articulate their faith in their own words, right? There are all these kind of practices that we say, this seems to be the thing that makes faith stick. Now, I'm an ideas guy, and so theories and postures and ethos, that's really appealing. Um, And this kind of shows us how we program and how we teach. And it's all really good, and all the books I just named, I would highly recommend. But there's a part of discipleship that I've always felt like I didn't have a sufficient answer for. And that's how to help students live faithful lives day in and day out. Even what we've heard from like Esau and Stuart has been this beautiful stuff, and it gives us this great picture. But like, what's your kid going to do on the bus? How are we going to help that kid when he's sitting at the lunch table? And we can do generic, like, sit with a kid that nobody talks to. But, like, how do we actually help them live faithful lives continuously? It's a very practical question. Um, So all these books and ideas have to do with parents and pastors, but they're not a thing that we can hand to a student to say, this is how you walk faithfully in ordinary life. Now, part of how I think we should try and gauge our success as youth ministers, one piece is to look at how students live when they leave our ministries and look at the lives of like 20-somethings just to kind of see a barometer, right? We were a piece of this, and so what does it look like 10 years out? It's not quite second generation, but it's sort of like, how does this have long-term effects? So see if this quote rings true to you as you hear from millennials as they talk about college and entering the job market. This is from a novel. Do you think we enjoy hearing about your brand new million dollar home when we can barely afford to eat craft dinner sandwiches in our own grimy little shoe boxes and we're pushing 30? A home you won in a genetic lottery, I might add, surely by dint of your having been born at the right time in history, you'd last about 10 minutes if you were my age these days. So when I first read that quote, I thought that sounds totally like what I hear current millennials say about being in the job market. The students I first started working with in 2007, that sounds like them. Um, I want you to guess, when do you think the novel that has this quote was published? What do you guys think? 80s. You think 80s? What do you guys think? 90s. 90s. I kind of set it up to kind of be a trick. It's, a, it's from a book called Generation X, which was published by an author named Douglas Copeland in 1991. Um, In fact, Generation X is a book that introduced the term Generation X into the popular use. I mean, people kind of use it in a couple of other places, but his book in 91 introduced this. Um, 
the book's about a bunch of 20-somethings who leave this cookie-cutter world of, you know, get a job, buy a house, have a family. And they live sort of in the desert in California trying to figure it all out. They're doing this long-term existential crisis thing. Um, and it sounded to me just like the kind of crisis, and I read the book, the kind of thing that current students are growing up into. You know, you tell me that I should kind of settle down and do the sort of suburban life thing, but like I'm pushing back against that. And that's probably common for every era. But what struck me most about the book and its characters is that they spend a lot of time bored. They're this sort of a shtick where they all tell each other stories. Like you have to tell me a story and they go out to the desert and they just have a picnic, right? And in those conversations, they're able to think through and process their melancholy. And what struck me is that while my students will grow up into a similar kind of 20-somethings world, right? Like there's probably interesting parallels of like post-Cold War, end of the war in the Middle East, hopefully end of the war in the Middle East world. Um, you know, the kind of economic situations, there are some interesting parallels. The difference is my students will not likely have the same kind of 20-something apathy manifest in the same way because they're growing up in a distracted smartphone age where they never have the chance to sit still and think about it. The world in which my students will live once they graduate, while I hope continuing to follow Jesus, is a world in which people are never home from work because work is always with them. They're both always within reach of their friends, but never actually near them. And in an age of constant white noise and distraction, there is no space for reflection, for prayer, for listening and thinking. It is just an overwhelming white noise distraction leisure. If they are sitting there wondering about their lives, they're not going to sit and ponder in melancholy. They're just going to watch 10 more episodes of The Office because it's awesome and, it, and it, you can watch it any number of times and still enjoy it, right? Um, so that's the world they're going into. So while the existential crisis of 20s is the same, we need to prepare them differently. I mean, maybe they always need to be prepared differently, but they need some tools to deal with this age of distraction. One of my favorite passages of scripture is at the end of John 6, where Jesus has gone through the whole bread of life discourse and everybody's leaving him because he said these really weird things. And his disciples are like, this is really hard. And Jesus says, are you going to leave me too? And then Peter has this incredible statement of faith, right? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we've believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter's statement isn't one of theological understanding. He has no Eucharistic theology at the end of John 6. We're Anglicans. We believe that's Eucharistic theology there. But it's his understanding of an experience and trust as Jesus as Messiah. And my concern is you never get a chance to experience Jesus if you never make space to hear his voice, if you don't have any practical ways to follow him in everyday life. Uh, Jamie Smith, sub-question, who gets to call him Jamie Smith and who gets to call him James K.A. Smith? Because I feel like when I hear people call him Jamie Smith, I'm like, oh, you must know the guy. But then, <laughs> I, anyways, Jamie Smith in You Are What You Love, which is this really foundational book for me, um, wrote this about the need to gain perspective. He said, it's like the opening parable of David Foster Wallace's Kenyon College commencement address. There are two young fish swimming along and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and says, what the hell is water? We need to become aware of our immersions, Smith says. This is water and you've been swimming in it your whole life. We need to recognize that our imaginations and longings are not impervious to our environments and only informed by our supposedly critical thinking. So Smith's book has been really big for me as I begin to prioritize the very concrete and ordinary habits of my own spiritual life, and then imagine what kind of good they can do for students in their spiritual lives. 
We need to identify the water we're swimming in and to think about how those assumptions affect our picture of what is good and beautiful and true and hold that up to the light of the Gospels. So my answer to this this distracted white noise world that our students are growing in is a rule of life, which today I'm going to define as spiritually informed practices and habits that form us into the likeness of Christ. Okay, here's my pitch for why a rule of life can be such a helpful part of both your spiritual lives, because let's be honest, we also are constantly distracted with our smartphones and checking Twitter when we're in the line at the bank. Um, if we actually go to physical banks anymore. <laughs> um, so it's, it's in ordinary, contemplative, and sometimes disruptive practices that we're able to step out of the well-worn grooves of ease and leisure and entertainment that our whole society is built upon, smartphones and not, and instead live lives that free us to love God and love others. Now, I think the ordinary part is actually really, really helpful in crafting this rule. Here's Smith again on intentionality. So too often we look for the spirit in the extraordinary when God has promised to be present in the ordinary. We look for God in the fresh and novel as if his grace were always an event when he has promised that his spirit faithfully attends the ordinary means of grace in the word at the table. We keep looking for God in the new as if grace were always bound up with the next big thing. But Jesus encouraged us to look for God in a simple, regular meal. And here's Tish Harrison Warren, who wrote Liturgy of the Ordinary, a fellow ACNA priest, which fleshed out a lot of Smith's ideas in real life. And she said this, A sign hangs on the wall in a new monastic Christian community house. Everyone wants a revolution. No one wants to do the dishes. I was and remain a Christian who longs for revolution, for things to be made new and whole in beautiful and big ways. But what I am slowly seeing is that you can't get to the revolution without learning to do the dishes. The kind of spiritual life and disciplines needed to sustain, emphasis mine, the Christian life are quiet, repetitive, and ordinary. I often want to skip the boring daily stuff to get the thrill of an edgy faith, but it's in the dailiness of the Christian faith, the making the bed, the doing the dishes, the praying for our enemies, the reading the Bible, the quiet, the small, that God's transformation takes root and grows. We look at faith in small moments, spiritual formation in its molecular form, not because this is all that matters, but because the only life any of us live is in daily pedestrian humanity. Now, reading her book was huge for me because this idea that, like, you don't have a fun life, you don't have a big life, you have a few big moments and, like, drudgery forever. Every, every morning when I get up and I have a few things that I have to get done every morning, I get my boys downstairs, get them to breakfast, I got to make sure there's coffee made, and I got to empty the dishwasher. And emptying the dishwasher is by far my least favorite task in the whole world. I worked in, in high school and college, some food service jobs, and I found them so soul crushing because every day when you close, you've got to clean everything. And every day, it's, it's like, and then you're like trying to clean a little bit early and then like stuff gets messy again. And it felt like Sisyphus pushing that rock up the hill every single day. I, I cannot take food service. And I told my wife like, and now I'm emptying the dishwasher every single morning. Like I am back here for the rest of my life. And I tell myself in those mornings, I, I actually like <laughs> remind myself, Ecclesiastes, like take enjoyment in your toil because eventually you die. Um, and that sounds terrible, but that's the actual lives we live. And if we prepare our students for only big, extraordinary things, 
Don't get me wrong, that has to be our vision. That has to be the thing that ignites their imaginations. But every day they're gonna have to empty a dishwasher and every day they're gonna have to do something boring and terrible because that's what life is like. And we live in a unique age when we're able to kind of entertain ourselves to make us think that life is fun. Um, and if we allow our students to be catechized into leisure as the highest good, there is no space for God to enter into quiet moments. If we make spiritual formations all about big, fancy mountaintop experiences, which often can only happen when we create them at youth group and at church, we aren't giving our students tools by which they can become more holy the rest of the week. We're enslaving them to get their spiritual high from us. We become spiritual drug dealers. But when they leave, they either don't go to church right away and, or they find a church that isn't quite like ours and then they no longer have access to their fix and their faith slowly withers because the only food we've been giving them is, is feasts and sometimes you have to make a peanut butter sandwich. Here's the good news though. As Anglicans, we actually have a lot of resources built into our history and practice. The concept of a rule of life itself comes from the monastic tradition dating back to Benedict of Nursia. In Benedict's time, there was kind of an unregulated free market for monks. So like anybody who wanted to be a monk just like went to the desert and was weird. And it's like, I guess you're a monk now. Um, and so he creates the rule as a way to discipline and structure monastic life. And his rule, Benedict's rule of life, or the rule of St. Benedict, is not terribly stringent, but it attracts followers initially. I should note, nobody really likes going from the free market to regulation. <laughs> Nobody likes the shift from disorder to order. And so the first ones who lived under him actually tried to poison his wine and kill him because they didn't like the, the rule at all. It's a note of caution to any of us who try to implement any of this back at our youth groups. Um, <laughs> you might get poisoned. Just be careful. Um, but our, our Anglican cycle of morning and evening prayer is founded on the idea of fixed hour prayer coming out of the monastic tradition. And if you look at Cranmer, morning and evening prayer is the cornerstone of Anglicanism because it, it's a rhythm. There is prayer, there is, there is scripture, there's the Psalms, and it forms us. In fact, I think many of us who love the Anglican way, we know this idea that habits can shape and form us. This shouldn't be new to us, especially if we came out of a non-liturgical tradition. I know for me, what drew me out of that free church tradition into Anglicanism was the way that the liturgy and the church calendar and the collects and the lectionary all helped form me slowly and subconsciously in ways that I wouldn't be able to do on my own or that I wouldn't choose to do on my own. The ruleness of a rule does some work as well. Um, that's the third use of the law, right? It does some good work in our lives. If we didn't have to do every single piece of the liturgy every week, if we got to opt out, we might opt out of some of them. Um, I once had Alan Jacobs, who's a professor currently at Baylor, who taught for a number of years, though, at Wheaton, and he was at All Souls. And I had him speak to our confirmation class about why he was Anglican. We sort of went through um, the 1662 catechism, went over some things, but I wanted to give them a pitch like, okay, you're being confirmed into Christ's church, but let's try and convince you that Anglicanism is a helpful thing. And so he told his story and his story was that he was attending typical evangelical low church settings for a while, but he couldn't bring himself to feel all the feelings he was supposed to feel at any given moment. He couldn't be excited enough in worship when everyone was excited. He couldn't feel 
what the emotional shape of that liturgy was asking him to do. And so he said, in the Anglican service, it made him do all the things he needed to do, confess, hear forgiveness, say the creed, read the Psalms, whether he felt like it or not. That fact is what dragged me through a several month season of doubt where I was a priest and I had a kid and I'm reading from the Jesus Storybook Bible and you sort of finish reading and in your head you're like, or maybe none of this is true. But I, I, I got to read this to you anyways because you're two and I got to tell you about this stuff. And then you go up front and thank God that we disagreed with the Donatists and my sacraments are still valid despite my, my doubt. I'm sitting there proclaiming things about truth and what's happening at the table. And I'm like, I don't know about any of this. But I sat there and I said the creed with, I didn't expect to be emotional about this. Um, I sat there and I said the creed with other people and the church dragged me through it. And other people dragged me through it when I couldn't, I, I, I couldn't have done that. I couldn't have gone to church and said the Psalms and said the creed on my own. But the church dragged me through it. And if we tell our students, you've got to feel it every time, they're going to hit a point where they can't and they need the church to drag them through it. Um, I'm sorry, that was unanticipated for me. Um, that's what happens when I ad lib and then I talk about myself. And then, um, man. Dang it, Spirit, we have a liturgy. There are rules. <laughs> Rowan Williams apparently, um, this is all anecdotal. I, know, I tried to find the quote and I couldn't find it. But apparently he compared praying the daily office to transportation. That some days it's like a beautiful drive in the country where you're seeing all these incredible things and enjoying yourself. And sometimes it's like getting on a crowded subway and you're smashed in next to people. And before you know it, you're at your destination. And he said, that's what the daily offices are like. Sometimes you just need routine to say whether or not I feel particularly warm and fuzzy afterwards, I just got to get where I need to go and this is going to take me there. I think that's why we need to offer our students more than just quiet time as a tool for daily devotion and formation. Because that's the, that's the rule of life that I grew up with, right? Have your devos, have your moment. And usually it's an Instagrammable moment, better if it's like at sunrise. <laughs> Once you get in your 20s in college, like I got my coffee and I'm having my time with Jesus and I'm journaling and it's great. And that is all really, really, really good. Like we wouldn't say like, don't journal and have a sweet time with Jesus. But if the only vision for spiritual formation, if our understanding of following Jesus that we hand to our students is just the country drive, they have no idea what's going on when they're riding the subway. And they'll think that praying and reading scripture in a way that doesn't immediately seem effective must not be effective. This is the value of the rule that says you don't just do things when you feel like it. You do things every day, no matter what, and you're going to get to see the effects in hindsight, probably not in real time. Um, at our Diocese of Quincy clergy retreat this last year, Chip Edgar, who's from Diocese of the Carolinas, he's the dean of their cathedral in Columbia, was talking about testimony and just sort of writing your story. And he sort of said the conversionists have stolen testimony about just conversion, but testimony is just telling God's work in our lives. And he said, there's so many moments in your life that you think are big moments and they're not. And there's so many small moments that end up changing your whole life and you would have never known it in the moment. And the only way for you to know which are which is in hindsight. And so we have to encourage our students in faithfulness, recognizing sometimes you're going to have mountaintop experiences that are mountaintop experiences and they do shape your life. And sometimes you're going to have a big emotional moment and then you get to be in your 30s and you don't even remember it because it actually didn't sustain anything. Um, and that model is in its form, in, in the form of doing things consistently and constantly, 
reminds us that God is there when you feel his presence and when you don't. That does work in our lives consciously and subconsciously, forming us over time into God's people, helping our students learn about the kinds of habits that will do this work, and then we got to encourage them to participate them. That's the kind of lifelong discipleship that will hopefully be shaping them for years and years and years after their ministries. Stuart is totally right. We've got to be clear about the gospel, and we've got to make sure the center of that teaching is Jesus. This has to be Christocentric. It can't just be mindfulness, right? That's really important. But we got to look 10 years out. We got to look 20 years out in the same way for our students. We got to say, if you're on fire when you're 17, that's great. But I am concerned with equipping you to be a follower of Jesus forever. That's the vision. And that's the kind of slow crockpot formation that does way more than just behavior modification, We're working with people in one of the most important phases of their lives where they are becoming who they are going to be. If you do any reading in like what's going on in adolescent brain formation, I mean, it's just incredible how important this phase is. So it's awesome if they don't do drugs and are committed to chastity. Those are really great things, but they cannot be our only goal. We have to be willing to to help them live in ordinary moments of which life is mostly made. We have to make sure that starts now, that they recognize in their boring high school lives, they're not doing something that is unlike adult formation. Like just start it now. My, my favorite metaphor for adolescence is that it's the internship of life, right? You know some things already. You have an idea of what it means to be human and you get to start trying it out and you get to fail a little bit, but you're not quite an adult yet. So you're kind of, you're figuring it out. But if you and your internship never got, looks nothing like a real career, if your internship is just like doing kid things, it's not a good internship, right? We want to give them a great internship where they are starting to try out, starting to fail. They have a safety net. I joked with my parents, um, not my personal parents, but the parents of my students, that I want their kids to have their existential crises now. Like, let's, let's ask them tough questions and have them deal with like, wait a minute, there are how many differences between the manuscripts and when's the earliest text that we have? Like, I want them to deal with that now. I want them to encounter it now so we can work on it together. So they're in, still in that safe place. Now again, I'm no pioneer in this, right? Like consistent ordinary faithfulness has been written about by tons of people. There's Liturgy of the Ordinary by Tish Harrison Warren, which I cannot more highly recommend. Um, Alan Noble wrote a great book called Disruptive Witness that he talks about how we exist in the culture we live in. Like Techwise Family by Andy Crouch, although not specifically about rule of life, is saying, how do, how do your habits shape you? Of course, You Are What You Love by James K.A. Smith. And then a few months ago, there's a book that came out called The Common Rule by Justin Early. Um, if I understand correctly, there's even a session on rule of life at a uh, provincial gathering at Plano, right? Um, did anybody go to that? I saw someone. Oh, there you go. Was it good? Oh, there you go. Nice. <laughs> I'm not going to put you on the spot and make you like explain it or anything. But um, so this is, this is my big vision. This is me thinking, this is amazing. We have to do this. So we have to move on to actual practices, though. How do you actually tell your students you should do this stuff? So the, the first thing I'd say is um, I don't have a ton of experience in this. I've just kind of started this in the last couple of years. But I'd say one of the best ways to teach students to do spiritual practices that can form a rule of life is to do contemplative practices together as a group. Now, I know I already said we don't want to be spiritual drug dealers and we don't want to make youth group the point. Um, 
And it might seem like I'm conflating contemplative practices and rule of life. They're not one and the same, although I think they're related. But I think as part of the rule we want to help our students set up, it has to include those disruptive quiet moments. Because silence is disruptive now. Disruptive quiet moments that will give them perspective about the habits that are already shaping their lives, whether they know it or not. I think kids who are growing up with, with Fortnite get that their habits shape them. Because they figured out that someone has figured out how to make a video game that's free and make tons of money off of it because I'll keep on playing and I'll want to do the dances and I'll want to buy new dances and new skins. And they recognize that habit. Kids who play Clash of Clans know what it's like to have something else dictate your time. They know habits shape them. They experience it. And by the time they get to high school, they have enough awareness to recognize, I don't know if I like this. And if you have kids who don't have smartphones, they've watched all their friends be catechized into app-based work. There is good money to be made in having our students become enslaved to the little dopamine shots that our phones give us, right? So our students get it. Giving them space to like take 20 minutes and reflect on it can do an amazing amount of good in that first step towards, wait a minute, habits shape me. And there's a there's, there are companies that are trying to shape me for their own ends. Um, so I think it does this dual function. So first of all, off, it gives them a chance to try out a contemplative practice. And then it gives them the space to think about their lives in terms of what do I need to do during the week that would be disruptive and formational for me? It gives them that, that dedicated space to reflect and ask God how to show them where their habits are already shaping them. So here's a few contemplative things that I've done with my group. Um, just a few weeks ago, we prayed the examine together. You can find really great resources on the examine online. Um, the examine prayer is just an Ignatian spirituality thing where you just invite God's spirit to be part of it. You're reflecting on your day. You're confessing things. You're thanking God for his work, and you're thinking about the next day. It's actually a really good personal prayer practice. The resources I found were for like college ministry because it's a really great thing to have college students start to do as a way to sort of practice something regularly. Um, the first time I, I did the examine, not the first time, but one time I did it last year. There's a sixth grader. I love him to death because I've realized he's like a sixth grade version of my own son. He does not get that like in a setting like this, when I say things, you shouldn't like start a dialogue with me that like (laughs) this kid doesn't get it at all. He'll just start talking at you. And I always overindulge his like tangents. Um, He's fantastic. (laughs) I just love this kid. But when we were done doing the exam, admittedly, I, I was doing a little bit of prompting. It wasn't, you know, 18 minutes of pure silence, but it was 18 minutes of him being quiet. And I get them back together and I say like, okay, what was your experience of that? He raises his hand and he goes, I was just quiet for 16 minutes and I don't know how that happened. I think you should talk to my teachers and tell them what you did because that was really amazing. Like he had this, <laughs> it was like an out of body experience for this sixth grader to be like, I was just quiet. How did that happen? Um, but it gives them that chance to re- reflect and think about it. Another one is uh, doing Lectio Divina, doing that kind of read the passage over and over again. It, it gets repetitive. It helps them. It helps them engage in scripture in a different way. Um, I think it's really important to read the Bible with our students and, and give them an internship experience of interpreting scripture. But I think it's cool to do those contemplative things as well. Um, I've done a prayer labyrinth through, through the nave at All Souls where I, I just... It takes me like half an hour to put all the tape down, but I put a little tape thing and it goes, I go like through all the pews, um, in front of the altar rail, then like around the altar, then back by the cross, through all the pews and back. And for some of my students, 
they've never stepped on that red carpet by the altar before. And they've never stepped up in the chancel or the choir or whatever it is up there, like by the cross. Like the first time they were like, I don't know if I can step here. And I'm like, yeah, live, like step into that. If you feel weird about this, that's fine. But then the, I just have them walk. I've had them do that like before Lent, like to say, take, we're just going to walk this for 20 minutes and take some time and ask God what you should give up for Lent. Um, I did it once to try and encourage them to, to pick a rule of life. But that prayer labyrinth, it's space to do some contemplation. You're walking, so you've got a bit of movement. Um, for squirrely middle school kids, it's sometimes helpful to not just sit and think, but to be able to kind of mosey around. Um, we've done like artwork reflection or, or looking at icons where we're just sort of setting them all up. Um, there's a fantastic website called the Visual Commentary on Scripture. I think it's called like the vcs.org look up visual commentary on scripture it's these people in england it's like connected with like some some museum in england um and it basically takes their plan is to go through all of scripture and every passage has three works of art that are related to that text there is commentary on each of the pieces of art from like art historians and then another longer piece on like all three kind of put together it is an incredible resource if you want to do art. Yeah. The visual commentary on scripture. It is, it's terrific. And the, the, it's thoughtful, right? Written stuff. Um, and it, it's like curious stuff as well. It's not just like a whole bunch of like, um, you know, Renaissance painting. There was one in Philippians talking, of, the passage was talking about, um, I mean like Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And one of the pieces of art was a poster for a prayer meeting that was taking place in East Berlin before the wall fell down. Um, and so, it was, it, you know, it's just a sign saying, like, we're going to gather and pray for Germany. Um, and it was like three months before the wall fell, too. And so it's this, this thing about, like, what does it mean that Jesus is king and looking at this prayer meeting and people who are living into it? That kind of stuff, students can have incredible insights, especially if your kids are going through, like, Catechesis of the Good Shepherd, Godly Play, Young Children in Worship. If they're doing that in their children's ministries, they have an imagination. And so they see artwork and they're able to stop and think about it. And you can talk about art as like a conversation piece. The artist is saying something. What do you think about it? Why, why are they saying that? It's a little bit looser, but it invites them to participate. So all these things give them space for contemplation. They give them interesting ways to think about art. But they require structure. I typically have music playing in the background rather than complete silence. My students ask for that. Um, being being the from the era I am, it's just a healthy, you know, Sufjan Stevens mix that just plays. Um, I once noticed that like... <laughs> I was sitting, I was sitting in our nave with like some candles lit, Sufjan playing in the background, just looking at art. And I was like, I am the emergent church that Moody warned me about when I was at Moody Bible Institute. <laughs> We're like, we might as well sit on beanbag chairs and do this. Um, so you have to do that. Sometimes you need to do some policing of your more squirrely kids. When we did the exam in a couple weeks ago, there's a kid, he kind of didn't want to do it. He was starting to like distract people. And one of my leaders just went down, got frankly, some of the resources for our children's ministry. One of the little like you know, trays they use and some art supplies so he could just kind of draw for a bit. Um, and I'll tell you, that kid, when we were just talking about it afterwards, said, first comment was, like, that was the most boring 20 minutes of my life. Um, like, okay, like, that's okay. Um, but then as I was talking about some of the limits of more subjective contemplative practices, and, and you need other people, he contributed to the conversation. He, he was able, you give him enough space, you, you sort of say, look, just don't distract other people. If you're bored, just sit and be bored. I mean, 
neurologists are pointing out that our kids could just be bored sometimes and that would be super good for them. If our youth groups were spaces for teenagers to be bored for two hours a week, that actually wouldn't be bad for them. Just take away their phones ahead of time and let their brains just sit. It just in a very physical mental health sense, it would be really good for them. Um, it is worth it to break them out of that noise of life. You can do a trial run of morning and evening prayer with them so it starts to feel familiar. Have them walk through it. Um, I use morning and evening prayer. Oh, no, I just do evening prayer now on my mission trips. And doing that has started to shape the ability for me to use evening prayer at youth group. So by now, after doing enough on mission trips and retreats, evening prayer is the structure for my teaching time for youth group. And my kids, like, they get it. They know it. If a new kid comes, they're a little bit lost, but there's enough of a, like, momentum that they can kind of jump in. Um, You can print out little morning and evening prayer booklets that they can use at home and cut out all the extra bits. Um, The ACNA prayer book has word file versions of the prayer book. So you don't need to sit there and like type it all out for yourself. Just put it in there, cut out all the optional stuff so they have just what they need and you can hand that to them. You can easily print them out. Um, Drew Hill from wherever he's from, South Carolina? Greensboro, Greensboro, North Carolina. Sorry, I do not want to mix up the Carolinas. Um, But he said once he he did like Amazon self-publishing to make a like summer prayer book for his students. And Amazon, you can self-publish things for like three bucks a book or something. I mean, if, if you do it yourself, it's pretty easy because you're not paying someone to do the typesetting. You just send them a PDF and say, send me a bunch of books. So he did that. That's an easy way to hand something to them. And they can say, look, I know. I grab this book. I read these things. When it says read a scripture reading, I know what scripture reading I'm going to read. And it's a way to hand them a tool that they can use in an ordinary way. Um, you can encourage them to start really small. I just started reading, to my, to my shame, Scott McKnight's book, Jesus Creed, which everybody's loved. It's, the newest version has like two different prefaces that are extra because of how popular it's been and how many times he's had to republish. But he has a sort of rule of life that he introduced where he, he says Jesus' summary of the commandments um, kind of in the way that the Shema function. Like that's his whole point, right? That, that Jesus redoes the Shema, adds from Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. And so he, he almost treats it like a breath prayer, it seems like, that he does this like, I say it every morning, but then whenever I think of it, I say, first commandment is this, love, your, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Second is this, love your neighbors yourself, no other commandment greater than these. And he says that to himself, and he says it, it shapes you. And it does. I mean, think if, if in a down moment, instead of grabbing your phone, you, you reminded yourself that I am to love God and love my neighbor and that's who I am, and that's a summary of what it means to follow God. You know, we want our, our students to, like, think about Jesus during the day, but imagine if we handed them an actual breath prayer, an actual thing that they could say all the time. Suddenly, they can have an experience of following Jesus, and God breaks into their ordinary lives in ordinary ways. And suddenly, when they go to college and someone brings up the problem of evil and how can a good God cause disaster, they can say, I don't know, but I've been following Jesus, and he's been good. What a difference that can make. So once you've given them the experience in these kinds of contemplative practices and maybe you've handed them tools, um, I think it's helpful to spend an evening, talk about a rule of life and help them think through one. I have gotten better at, at helping them do this over time. So learn from my mistakes. The very first time I just said, I kind of talked about the Benedictine stuff. I talked about rule of life. So I said like, come up with your own rule of life. What, what should you be doing? Um, they had a little bit of difficulty coming up with a rule of life out of nowhere, right? Like that's kind of difficult. Um, 
So the next time I gave them four categories, I said, okay, think of things to do for each of these. When and how are you going to read your Bible every day? When and how are you going to pray every day? What is one thing you need to try and refrain from? And what's one thing you need to try and do more of? Right? Like these are just simple, like here's four things. Do one of each of these. Um, and that structure helped. But this last Sunday, I, I tried something that I think will be even more effective. Fingers crossed. Um, we'll find out in 10 years. Um, <laughs> so I, I presented it this way. And I, I used the, the list from um, a book I mentioned earlier, earlier, Justin Early's The Common Rule. I think his website's thecommonrule.org. Does that sound right, Taylor? You said you had been there. Um, you can look it up. Just published by IVP. Um, he puts eight practices as his like contemporary 21st century rule of life. Um, four daily, four weekly. He has like a little like grid, like some are going away from people, some are going towards people. It's a whole like fancy category. But his daily practices are turn off your phone for an hour a day. And he's like a mergers and acquisitions lawyer. And he's like, look from five to six, you just can't get a hold of me. Um, Andy Crouch allegedly, when he goes on vacation, sets an autoresponder for his emails that says, when I get this email, my email will delete it. I will never see this email. Email me again in two weeks because like truly I am, you have sent this to the garbage heap. I will never, ever see this email. Um, now he's Andy Crouch and he can get away with that, right? <laughs> right? Like Andy Crouch's intern can't, can't get away with that. I mean, maybe because they, they work for Andy Crouch, but like there is something about saying I'm inaccessible. Anyways, so turn your phone off for an hour a day. Um, where am I here? Pray kneeling three times a day. He said that, that shapes you. Kneel, feel your knees against the hard ground. Um, eat one meal a day with other people. I mean, there's tons of stuff that's been written about the value of table and fellowship. Um, and scripture before screens. Read from your Bible before you look at your phone. And he talks a lot about how what we do first shapes our day. I will say personally, that's one that I've incorporated that has been a huge game changer for me. Um, I am... I am addicted to the drama of what's going on in our world. And I love to just like scroll through Twitter and see what terrible thing is happening now. I am in, in a very vicious way. This is a confession. I am bad about that. And it does shape your day when you wake up and you grab your phone. And the first thing you do is like, who can I be angry about now that I don't see in real life? Like what distant person that I don't have to treat like a human can I be angry about right now? It has made, and it, and the other thing is, like, sometimes I'm up before my kids so I can read in bed, but sometimes, like, I got to do the dishes and breakfast before I can even get to that. And then I have, like, a whole half hour before I even get to my phone. Man, that's a game changer. But I, I will be honest, it's a game changer in hindsight. Every day is not a magical moment, but I can tell looking back how it's shaped my days. Okay, so those are his four daily. Phone off an hour, pray kneeling three times, eat one meal a day with others, read scripture before turning on your phone. His four weekly practices are Sabbath, fasting from something for 24 hours a day or a week. Um, he does like a Thursday night to Friday night thing. I think that's actually a, a nice helper to not do like Friday midnight to midnight. Um, he says curating, curating media consumption to four hours a week. Um, I'm iffy on that. I'm, I'm not, I, I already mentioned the office and binge watching. So maybe, maybe I'm just pushing against it because it'd be really good for me. Um, I, I think some of the pushback against media consumption is, is too myopic. Oftentimes those same people are fine with books of any variety and any quantity as if I recognize different parts of the brain. I don't know. I'm iffy on the, the curating media thing. Being thoughtful of it though, that would be a good thing. Um, and his last weekly one is talking to a friend for an hour every week. 
um, having a conversation where you have to reveal some of yourself. Um, now, these make a little more sense for adults because some of them, I mean, eating a meal with other people just happens at school all the time. Um, most, any of our kids who are in families probably have a family meal at some point. Um, but as a starting point, they're really good. So on Sunday, I asked my students, think about which practices would be the most disruptive to your lives and which ones might do the most good. Sometimes they're one and the same, sometimes they're not. But I said, like, just take a few moments, think about how your days function and which ones are going to jar you out of the water you're swimming in. But then in addition to all these, I asked them all to commit to weekly fasting and kneeling prayer. Um, you can see I'm a good, I'm apparently become a good high church person. I didn't include Bible reading as one of my required ones. Fasting and prayer, whatever, you'll get your Bible later. Um, I, I don't actually mean that. This is my problem with recording things is I'm prone to hyperbole. Um, but I said, let's all do this together. Every Friday, we are going to fast from things. I asked them, commit to four weeks. Do this for four weeks. In four weeks, we'll come back together and talk about how it shaped us. But kneel in the morning, kneel in the evening, and pray and fast from something on Fridays. It helps keep everybody accountable. It gives a group shared experience. Part of what makes the monastic community work is that they're doing it all together, right? They're, they're all here doing it together. Fasting is so hard when you're fasting by yourself. A number of years ago, I would do like fast feast events where like fast on Fridays, we'll come together, we'll worship, and then we'll have pizza afterwards. It'll be great. And like some families were hardcore and like like, I'm sorry, you're fasting, but you got to sit at dinner with us. And so these like eighth grade girls have to sit at dinner while their fifth grade brothers like just chow down on their favorite <laughs> meals and they've just got to sit there. Some of them went to like cross country meets, not eating. I felt a little bit bad afterwards. Um, so that's a nice caveat. Make sure you tell people not to kill themselves yeah. in the process. I actually told them for fasting, I can't do um, 24 hour food fasts. Um, my, my body and my metabolism do not do well without food on top of the regular like grouchy, grumpy stuff. I, I find by like four o'clock in the afternoon, like I start to feel cold. I start to feel tired. The way my body is cannot do that. And so I told them, don't do things that'll kill you. Like don't do things that are unhealthy, find ways that'll be disruptive. So we're going to see what happens. I, I mean, maybe I'll like blog about it in three weeks. You guys can all read if see if it was a success. Anglican podcast about it? Done. I maybe know someone who does that. Um, but I love this idea so much because this rule of life has produced so much fruit in my life and it's been so good for me and it's a sort of crystallizing of some of the things that make Anglicanism so helpful for me as a Christian um, that I want to pass it on to my students. I want them to know what it lives, looks like to live a faithful, ordinary life where God breaks in all day long in little moments. He just keeps on showing up if you have the eyes to see him, if you are willing to take a moment and say, wait a minute, I need to love God and love others. Um, and I think, I think it's a way to subvert a culture that is just asking us to be always kind of on 24 seven, right? There's no rhythms to contemporary life anymore. There is just always on all the time kind of working, kind of not. Answer your emails whenever you get it. That is a hellscape of a life that, that our society is turning into. And our students, if they're going to follow Jesus, need to have something countercultural that says, no, I'm actually going to live this weird rhythm where like every day I do this and every day I, I do this other thing. And I think that will shape our lives into loving other people. That's the Christocentric piece I mentioned earlier. 
I, I joked with my students on Sunday, like you could form a rule of life to form you into any other kind of person. Um, whenever I do lessons, arson is my, is my sort of joking sin. I say like, you could have an arsonist rule of life where you like, you contemplate fire every day and every day you walk into a building, you think about what that building looks like on fire. Like you could cultivate an arsonist's heart with a rule of life. So the, the things that you're doing have to be Christ focused. Fasting without prayer is just dieting. Like, right. Like it's all got to point to Jesus. Um, but I, I'm really doubling down that this is going to be a thing that my students are going to really benefit from that I think will really affect them. I think we've got 2000 years of history on our side on this idea. I think we've got the Anglican church that many of us came to from a sort of always on, always happy evangelicalism. And we said, no, I need some space for Lent in my life. I need some space to be sad and to read the Psalms and hear stuff that makes me uncomfortable. I need, I need to kneel and confess every week and then hear that I'm forgiven and then receive grace at the table. These are rhythms. These are physical, tangible practices, and we need to hand them to students to do at home too. And I think a rule of life does that. I think as Anglicans, we already know that habits form and shape us and that a rule of life just sort of helps them do that in their everyday lives. So that's my, that's my pitch. That's rule of life. And there you have it. Thank you so much, Andrew, for that excellent teaching. And as is our custom, I will finish now with a collect taken from uh, the brand new 2019 ACNA Book of Common Prayer from page 693, uh, an occasional prayer, number 91, for submission to God's will. O Holy Spirit, beloved of my soul, I adore you. Enlighten me, guide me, strengthen me, console me. Tell me what I should do, give me your orders. I promise to submit myself to all that you desire of me and to accept all that you permit to happen to me. Let me only know your will. Amen. Grace and peace, friends.